Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're investing $1 billion into Seabus property. Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia and creating healthy long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. CBUS, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Another massive week in the global game of cricket, the game that we cover (laughs) on this podcast a couple of times a week. We've got test matches in Antigua, WNCL final, the pointy end of the Sheffield Shield, one-day internationals at Pune, uh, Australia's women are playing T20s in New Zealand, Bangladesh's men are doing likewise, the IPL starts next week, the county championship starts next week, it's spring in England, it's 23 degrees outside, what more could we want, Jeff Lemon? I I remember thinking at one point during this week, I was like, oh, this is, you know, the quiet time of the year. Um, it's sort of in between the northern and the southern summers. It's nice when, you know, when the pressure's off a bit. And then we look through that list and it's entirely bewildering and frightening that not only are that many things happening, but that I've been paying attention to all of them <laughs> and know something about them all. Like, mm, yes, perhaps, perhaps we should get a life outside this. But, you know, this is the life that we have and uh, we, we can't fight it. Yeah, and on top of all of that, about an hour before we started recording today, a microwave stopped playing New Zealand. Well, not really in the mm. end, but it looks like a microwave stopped play. Um, shall Jenny, I? Jenny, Jenny, or, or microwave? Microwave Jenny. Jenny. Yeah, that'll yeah. a nice niche joke to start the show today. Basically, it looked like on the television broadcast that match referee mm-hmm. Jeff Crow in the T20 International between New Zealand and Bangladesh didn't 
give up a DLS pass score to Bangladesh in their second inning. Mm-hmm. So the, the first innings ended due to rain and, and away we went. But on television, it looks like they were trying they were probably had a laptop in front of this microwave but it looked like they were plugging the numbers into a microwave and a number of minutes of play were lost probably 10 minutes or so were lost as they were um, trying to and that was nine balls into the chase by the way so bangladesh batted for nine balls of their chase of about 170 odd um not knowing what their mm. target was and eventually the umpire's like hang on a minute we need to know what they're after here in case it starts raining again of course because after five mm. overs that constitutes a game in, in t20 international so i've already said to lawrence booth that next year we've got Stuart broad on the cover of wisdom almanac um this year wearing a mm-hmm. face mask next year an early candidate might be that the duckworth lewis stern microwave could appear on the front of the good book i don't know a lot of cricket will be played but that's an early contender Jeff Crow starring Brandon Lee. I'd be interested to read the memoirs of Jeff Crow when he up stumps. He he was on the Sandpaper tour for the first two tests, wasn't he? That's um, right. Yeah while, yeah. while everything was going hay- haywire with David Warner and Quinton de Kock. Um he's he's been involved in uh, more than his share of uh, shall we say brouhaha's um, <laughs> over the years. Jeff Crow as a match referee, much more interesting career as a match ref than as a player. <laughs> so you know when the Crow Diaries get written. Um, I'll be interested to flick the pages. Yeah, interesting family uh, in the game and outside, of course. So he's Russell Crowe's cousin, I suppose. That, that's the that's the relationship there, isn't it? So you're looking at me through the screen uh, with confusion. Maybe eyes. I'd never thought Maybe. about it, but I mean, I'm from New sure. Zealand. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty you know, sure Martin Crowe Crow and Russell Crowe. Yeah, I, I, in fact, I'm almost certain that they're they're first mm. or second cousins. So. I'm sure okay. someone, one of the many New Zealand fans will, will, will yeah. let us know. We're going to go to New well, Zealand Russell later Crow in the was, show. He was always in that basket that um, of, of you know, New Zealanders who got stolen by Australia when, you know, when he won an Oscar, but then he's one of the few that we gave back afterwards. You know, once he hit the guy in the head with the phone, we were like, I oh, know Russell Crowe definitely from New Zealand. Um, <laughs> we'll keep Farlap, Clary Grimm at the Pavlova and Crowded House, but you can have Rusty. <laughs> Okay, so well, we, you mentioned Cape Town, you mentioned Newlands. Why don't we sort of start there, which is three years ago mm. uh, this week, of course, three years ago since the the debacle, the Farago, um, and that's prompted <laughs> no wonder a I whole... I keep waking up in the middle of the night in a cold yeah. sweat the last few days. <laughs> it's prompted a whole range of activity, including an interview with Steve Smith in today's News Corp papers uh, conducted uh, by Ben Horn, and there's quite a bit in this. Principally, for the first time, Smith's out there emphatically saying he wants to captain the Australian team again. Perhaps more in a more nuanced way, what he's really saying is if Cricket Australia invited him to be captain again, he'd be enthusiastic about taking on the armband again. He sort of hinted at this earlier in the year on radio and SEN. He Mm. made those comments about Pat Cummins, which... People read into it that he didn't believe Cummins should necessarily be captain on account of the fact that he's a fast bowler. But now it kind of all comes to the boil just as he's readying himself to leave for the Indian Premier League. He's kind of um, left this ticking bomb (laughs) on the doorstep of Cricket Australia saying that he's keen. So, Jeff, I thought it might be uh, instructive or I thought it might be useful perhaps if we went through the comments in detail because it's... Okay. As I say, there's a number of paragraphs here and maybe we can find some sense in this and, and draw some conclusions ourselves. So the first quote was, right. I've certainly had a lot of time to think about it and I guess now I've got to a point where if the opportunity did come up again, I would be keen. So that's line one. Line two. Okay. So line two, which builds on that, if it was what Cricket Australia wanted and it was what was best for the team at the time, it's certainly something that I would be interested in now, that's for sure. Now, I find that bit interesting because he's reached a point 
and now he's interested, which suggests that there was a time when he didn't have this view, that he didn't necessarily want to be Australian captain again, which is kind of how I felt it to be. I, I think we left this about a year ago, the last time we talked mm-hmm. about it on the show with, with Morris Duffy, his, his life coach in great depth, that yep. you know he didn't necessarily fancy that kind of responsibility, but something has changed. Well... I always wonder with these kind of things with Steve Smith whether something has changed for him or whether something has changed in the opinions of the people around him and that if he's got people telling him that he should be captain again, then he might be inclined to go along with that. You know, I, right. I wonder I wonder how much of it comes from... Like, okay, there, there may be a motivation that says um, having undergone an intense humiliation and a lot of scrutiny and so on, one way to kind of clean the slate to an extent would be to get the job again and do it better the second time around. But you, you wonder what what the actual practical value in it would be, what what the point would be of doing it. Um, so, and, and, and who wants him to be? You know, is that coming from elsewhere? I'll, I'll be interested to see. This may be settled by the time the, the podcast goes out, but whether he's any chance of captaining the Delhi Capitals because Shreyas Iyer has a shoulder mm, injury mm. and is going to miss the IPL. Ricky Ponting's coaching that team. Um, and I'm sure Ricky Ponting would be one of those people who would be very keen for Smith to be captain again. Oh, yeah, great player, get him back in there. You know, no, no sins in Australian cricket. So... You know, it's it's probably not going to be Steve Smith. It'll probably be Rishabh Pant because he's the the flavour of the moment. But Smith's an option. He's in that team. He's in that squad. Um, he'll 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 likely be in the eleven anytime he's available. So, you know, Ponting at the helm, it could happen. Yeah, interesting question about Ponting. I've not really thought too much about that. I don't know whether it will be as blunt as that from him. He doesn't strike me Ponting this is as someone who would be as blasé as that about. Uh, another Australian captain like I, th- I think he would have more layers to his thinking than how you've depicted it I don't know I suppose time will tell so let's go back to what Smith said to Ben Horn. third line I'm always going to have to live with Cape Town regardless of whether I lead again or not it's always there now this for me all came to the boil of course when we saw the the, the marking guard storm in a teacup after the final day of the Sydney test match it must have been the the tram tracks that he would walk he would travel within if he were captain. I mean, yeah. it'd be. I mean, the degree of difficulty for him to, to hold that role when everything is going to be brought back to sandpaper. Everything's going to be brought back to that um, that significant lapse of leadership judgment uh, back in two thousand and eighteen. I think he's right. He will always be known for Cape Town, and consequentially, it, it almost becomes impossible for him, him to have the the clear air necessary to do this job without that constant distraction. Would that be fair? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with that. That. It's. It'd be really hard for everyone else in his team as well to be playing under that captain when whatever you did, you know, anything that was a little bit questionable in any way would be magnified because it was attached to this guy who who people have decided is first and foremost a cheat, you know, and and so yeah. My view of it isn't that he's a bad person or that he's unforgivable or that you know what he did was the worst thing in the world. Yeah, they cheated and it was shit and they got whacked pretty heavily for it and you know I'm, I'm happy for that to be that I, I don't think that he should be excluded from the captaincy on that basis but I don't think he's a good option to be a captain he was never a particularly compelling captain he wasn't mm. a particularly inspiring leader he was an inspiring player because he was really really good at what he did and he can do that without being the captain and without the the pressure of being the captain. You can have someone who's a bit more street smart um, and got a bit more statesmanship 
to be a captain and that's what Tim Payne's been able to do. So having him in that role, it means that everything's going to be exaggerated with the worst possible interpretation if he's in charge and I don't think that's going to help anybody. Yeah, and I think that, that that's what this next line relates to as well. I've been through all that now. Time keeps moving forward and I've learned so much the last few years about myself and grown as a human being. I think that kind of mm. follows on from your point. We know what he was like as a captain in his mid-20s. Would he be any different in his early 30s? Has his character changed or has his personality changed in such a way that he'd be a better all-round leader? I'm not sure whether that's necessarily been answered. In fact, I mean... I suppose they've almost lent into the narrative that he's even more obsessive than he Mm. may have been before, which was a criticism of the way that he went about it. Remember that Adelaide Test match in 2017 where he said that he didn't sleep for the whole test and was taking sleeping tablets to to go to bed late at night and stuff that didn't sort of seem at the time to be the behaviour of of someone who was in a healthy space as a leader. Now, again, I, I, I measure that against... What we learnt from Morris Duffy last year, who knows more about Steve than just about anyone. It's a worthwhile interview to revisit if you want to learn more about the, the processes that Steve goes through each day and, and did through his band. But yeah, I guess that's mm-hmm. a, a, a question. He's trying to say there that he has moved forward and he has grown as a human being. And I suppose we're, we're in no position to judge that necessarily. But it, I, my sense is that has he changed enough to become that all-round leader that you need to be as test captain, I'm not sure. It doesn't feel compelling. You know, I can't say if he has grown or he hasn't. What I can say is that he has a career-long tendency to say the thing that he thinks that people want him to say at the time, to ref- reflect the line that that is around him. And I reckon in an interview like that, you're supposed to say that you've grown and you've changed because you're presenting a new version of yourself. It's a PR exercise. There's a reason that you do a major sit-down interview with the main cricket writer of the biggest tabloid in the country. And it's not for kicks. It's not because you had a spare day. It's media. You know, it's an ecosystem. We know this. We work in it. There's Mm -hmm. a relationship between the outlets that produce content, you know, the, the hill of content, and the players and what's useful to them. They agree to do things that are going to work for them so why is he doing the interview because he wants to give a good account of himself and what does he have to say in the interview that he's grown and changed as a person but after everything that happened and after all the terrible decisions that he made one thing that I look at is him running that Vodafone ad in December 2019 was it when 18 18, um, when he was still banned he was still suspended and he put out that ad that was all about how oh, it was tough to learn the hard lessons and how he wanted to go and help young people and blah, 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 which he said was trying to help a mental health charity, which wasn't even mentioned in the ad. And it was about flogging phones. And he did a press conference the day that that ad came out. That was his first press conference since he'd been banned eight months earlier or whatever it was. So that showed incredibly bad judgment. I thought, um, and and it showed incredibly bad advice from the people around him. So I don't necessarily trust that idea that if he was someone who'd learned a lot after the experience of being banned, he wouldn't have gone through with that process and with putting his name on an ad to sell things, using his suspension to sell things. It wasn't like I've come back from my suspension and now I'm selling things. It was the fact that I got banned is the selling point in this ad how do you make a compelling case that that person is wiser and, and older and more learned than, than the one who copped the punishment? 
Yeah, that, that was a, a big misstep at the time. And, I mean, this might be purely coincidental, but he's launched his YouTube page today. You know, huge amount of effort from him on social media and his team on social media to launch this YouTube channel. I mean, were the two things coordinated? Did he know he was going to go out there today and talk about wanting to be the future captain of Australia, knowing how much attention would be around his social media channels and thus the YouTube? I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying it's necessarily that, that way, but... One can certainly paint that picture. And the last line here, the last quote, I feel as though I'd be in a better place if the opportunity did come up. If it doesn't, uh, that's fine as well. And I'd support whoever is in charge the same way I've supported Tim and Finchie. And you know what? That's true. I think he has been a great source of support to Tim Payne and Aaron Hmm. Finch. It feels that way watching him at close quarters when we've been at test cricket and limited overs cricket for that matter. He's always in the ear of the captain. No one's ever questioned Stephen Smith's cricket smarts. I mean, his obsessive uh, following of the game, the fact that he's a three-format player, he's on the cutting edge of all the different evolutions in the game, I suppose you would call it. So his support of the existing skipper is one thing, and whether that would be the best place for him to eventually land in the context of everything else we've discussed so far in in this conversation, I wonder if if that is right. So whether he'd be a fine vice-captain to the next leader and help them Mm -hmm. make good cricket decisions without being burdened with all the baggage of Cape Town, which, as he says himself... Is impossible to avoid. And maybe the best position for him is as a permanent vice-captain, as one who's not going to step up and captain in the event of an absence or an injury, but someone who's going to be the de- dedicated leader in, in the way that, say, Brad Haddon was, where he didn't want to step up and captain when the opportunity was there, but he wanted to be that too, I see. That would be a way of Cricket Australia giving Steve Smith some sort of circle, some sort of closure to say he got back into a leadership position again, you know, forgiveness, absolution, redemption, blah, 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 but not necessarily having him in the top job. By the time they next play a test match or by the time they go to the T20 World Cup, he'll be 32. In some ways, that could be a really good time to become a captain. Most captains last for about four years. You know, that tends to be the roughly the cycle in, in Australian cricket. So mm. 32 to 36 could work, but... They don't need him to be captain. They need him to be the best batsman in the team. So I just don't see what the point would be in saying, uh, okay, Steve, continue to be the best batsman, but also we want you to do all of the functions, give the speeches, go to the press conferences, do the toss, You know, have to spend all of the extra time and energy and so on doing the, the tactics. And particularly it, it's the fronting the media stuff that really takes a toll on players. What's the benefit to him? What's the benefit to Australia, to that team? Nothing much. I just don't see what the value would be. Yeah, and Michael Clark uh, illustrated that towards the end of his career, he explained it's, it's a massive burden being the national test captain and we shouldn't sort of brush over that and it didn't seem to always suit Steve when he had that role and again, he was in his mid to late 20s, he was the best player in the team, he'd seldom been captain of a team before that I mean, of course, he, he stood in for Clark in the summer of 14-15 mm. and he'd looked after the big bash for the Sydney Sixers but it's not as though he was sort of the, the, the full-time New South Wales captain like someone like Moses Henriquez, for example, mm. so yeah, I think that's all part of it. And, and one last thing that, that's worth noting on the way through, and Jared Waitley had this conversation on his show today, is that they did build into the punishment in Cape Town that to become captain again, Steve Smith would need to be, and there's a generic form of words here about need to uh, be supported by the public. How on earth are they mm. going to measure that? How can you yeah. how can you get a full appreciation? I mean, you know, Jared took some talk back and it was, to me, it's good to sometimes listen to uh, commentary from well outside the bubble. It was running pretty negatively against Smith, it seems. Some very supportive comments too, but mm. 
I mean, there's no way you can't hold a plebiscite from a from you know Australian cricket fans on whether mm. the public have got his back or not. I, I certainly think that the Australian public had Steve Smith's back in 2019 when he returned to the Test team at Edgbaston. He batted like few others have in a bilateral series in that Ashes. It was extraordinary to watch. But I think there's a gap between wanting him to be the best player he can be and to use the word from your book, redeem himself uh, to the extent that one can for what happened, mm. and then having to, a couple of years on from that, hold a job which carries with it such immense pressure, so much baggage from before. It just, yeah, it's not not some personal slight on him. It's not sort of, sort of some character assassination to think that he'd be well better off without it. The, the baggage green, if you will. Um, yes. Is it possible to do something like to tie it in with the federal election next year, like they do in America <laughs> where they, they put all the different ballot questions on the ballot? You know, should we bring in this amendment? <laughs> should we ban guns in kindergartens, et cetera? Um, and, and then if we get that in on the ballot, you know, tick your, your, your house of reps, do your Senate, should Steve Smith be your captain again, and we're done. You know, just find out what the odds are on the Andrew Lamming-Steve Smith double. You know, do they both get back in? Um, and then, and like, add a little extra point of spicy interest on election night anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, they. Yeah, I think um, they, they, one day there, there might be a, a republic referendum alongside a federal election. I'm pretty sure that's the the, the standing Labor policy. So maybe there can be a couple mm. of plebiscites alongside the uh, House of Reps and Senate ballot. Although probably not. Jeff, let's put a let's put a fork in that conversation for now. I'm sure we'll have it again in a couple of months. Next to stay with Test cricket, men's <laughs> Test cricket. Let's go over to the Caribbean to Antigua specifically, where a really interesting series is playing out uh, between the West Indies and Sri Lanka to recap the Windies one, the T20s 2-1 and the one day is 3-zip. It's all being played in Antigua, so no additional travel. The test matches are being played at the uh, the soulless Sir Vivian Richards Stadium. I always find it quite mm. a contradiction going to that joint because a, a player with so much personality and who, who left such an indelible mark on the game, Viv Richards, has a stadium named mm. after him, which is the complete opposite of that. But anyway, that's where the first and second uh, test yeah, matches. It's, it's, no, it's no Sir Garfield Sober's waiting area at Trent Bridge down <laughs> the bottom of one of the staircases there's a couple of really sad little couches and a coffee table and then a very ornate uh, plaque hanging from the ceiling saying sir garfield sober's uh, seating area just a real honor must have been quite i hope they got him to open it i hope they got him across to cut the ribbon I think on the other side of the stairwell, it's the Sir Richard Hadley waiting area as well. So they've got both uh, two greats of the game covered off. Uh, Jeff, you're watching the first test pretty closely. Yeah, um, it, look, it was a cracking test match. Uh, look, and, and we haven't had a lot of West Indies test match love on the show since you know they were in England back in August and September. And uh, Sri Lanka and West Indies maybe teams that we don't, get to talk about as much as we wanted to. Um, I was particularly taken by the fact that uh, Lahiru Tiramane made 70 in the first innings and 70-odd in the second as well. Now, this is a player who you particularly found quite comical in the Mm. fact that he was still getting a game um, despite many, many years playing Test cricket. And he was averaging 22 when England arrived in Sri Lanka earlier in the year. He's got that up above 25 now. Made Good a ton against the English. Pair of 70s in against the West Indies. He's going really well. So that's 70 out of 169, which is, what's that, about 55%, I reckon. Um, so, you know, not, not Bannerman areas, but very good areas. And then, you know, Jason Holder loves a cheap five for, like five for not many, I mean, not, not five for bad wickets, five for 27. Very happy with that. Then the West Indies get 100 leads. They're enjoying themselves, you know, 
pretty well at that point. And then Sri Lanka bat huge in the third innings, make 476. They have Patan Nisanka on debut, this tall, very correct sort of player who's an opening bat in Sri Lanka but was batting at six. Narashan Dikwella made 96 as well. And then the West Indies had to decide whether to try to chase 375 or bat out the draw. Um, and they ended up batting out the draw. But it, it's this new guard, these guys who came in when they were in Bangladesh, in the Krima Bonner and Kyle Mayers, particularly um, John Campbell, who's you know who played a couple of years ago but hasn't played a lot of test cricket, and Josh De Silva, the, the wicketkeeper. They've been the players contributing with the runs consistently. So it's quite exciting seeing the West Indies having having players coming through who've, who've got a bit of fight about them, and they're not the same old names. They're, they're, they're newer players. They're not necessarily young players, but they're kind of second-tier players who've come in from the West Indies first-class system. Yeah, that's that's well summed up. I love the fact that there's a new generation of test cricketers coming through under the captaincy of Jason Holder, and they're super competitive. And, and Ian Bishop made this mm. point in his commentary that it takes quite a bit to draw a test match when you have to bat potentially 110 overs on the final day. In the end, they shook hands after 100. But Bono getting his first test ton, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Rakeen Caldwell made runs in the first innings down at number nine, so they back quite deep. I love with Nasanka, by the way. I mean, in addition to being a very elegant-looking player, I think he averaged 69 in first-class cricket before getting an opportunity to play a test match, which was something that Andrew Sampson was monitoring through the test mm. for, for a range of reasons. He found that quite fascinating. But, yeah, Josh De Silva's another one who's, you know, won a spot in that team after being on the periphery for a couple of years and, you know, does the job with the gloves, making runs down at number seven uh, or number eight. Uh, Kyle Mayers, we know what he did on, on debut. So there's a whole group of them there, which uh, there's a lot to love. Dick Weller, by the way, nice. 96, which I think I'm right in saying that's his 14th half century in test cricket yet to make a ton. He got out for yeah. 90 odd against England in the second test and he was absolutely gutted. This time he holed out for 96 after putting on that massive stand with Nasanka. So falling short, but certainly making a contribution. Just can't sort of break the back of that that overall milestone that the batsmen strive for. So he's got a bit of the Shane Watsons about him, I suppose, there, Jeff. Yeah. And, and also that Oshada Fernando made runs as well. He made 91. Uh, so he's a player who we were watching a lot in the 2019 World Cup and getting pretty yep. excited about the way he went about things. And Dunajaya De Silva, who is one of my favourite batsmen to watch, very good bowler and fielder as well, but he came through in that 2016 tour when Australia went to play test matches in Sri Lanka with Kusal Mendes. They both arrived at the same time and half century from him as well. So there's you know there's this core of really good Sri Lankan players coming through yeah, as well. Yeah. So you know it's, it's quite an optimistic time and, and I guess they've started the second test now is probably not a lot of point going into detail there because it hasn't gone all the way through but but I loved seeing a test that was a full swinging back and forth you know Sri Lanka shot out early West Indies get the lead Sri Lanka go big the pressure back on the Windies the idea of would they try to chase at 375 in a day plus 20 overs they, they could have been a chance to run that down you know I'm almost disappointed they didn't have a crack at it but as you say to bat out the draw is, is significant as well and, and there is a, a bit of optimism around and Sri Lankan cricket as well with, uh, with Tom Moody coming back into the, the hutch there. Yeah, they're having a good year, the West Indies, across the board. I will say about the second test, Jeff, it stumps on day one. Don't worry too much about the fact that the Windies made 287 for seven. What I do want to note is that Craig Brathwaite's 99 not out overnight at the close. He batted the whole way through the day. Um, Paco mm. on Twitter said it's very anti-Bannerman areas that he's got 99 from out of the 287 uh, the Windies have, have made so far. He collected his 4,000th test run along the way. But 99 not out at Stumps is rare. It's happened 15 times according to one chart I looked up. And every yeah. time that a player has been 99 not out 
at Stumps. They've gone on to make a century the next day. So, of course, you'll want to add to that list uh, tomorrow. Some interesting players here. Glenn Turner, one of our favourites on the final word, did it mm-hmm. a couple of times against Pakistan in 1969 and Australia in 1974. Greg Chappell did it um, against the English at the MCG in 1980. Uh, Faf Duplessis did it on Boxing Day against New Zealand, against the West Indies, sorry, in 2014 and I think mm-hmm. there's one other player who did it twice I can't quite see it in front of me here but nevertheless oh no Wally Hammond Wally Hammond did it at Durban in 1939 I don't oh, in the, think in the timeless yeah I'm looking at it now it says that was in January 1939 I'm pretty sure the timeless test was March 1939 wasn't it so maybe oh, they, might they, been, played they, played they might have played the first and the last there yeah they often yeah. played a couple in the same city in South Africa in right. those days but still a memorable tour. So hopefully Craig Brathwaite will uh, go onto that list tomorrow morning. A couple of one hundred. He, he almost as got well a Bannerman a, a few years ago. He when, did when they played Hobart. Australia in twenty sixteen in Hobart. He came out in the second innings when they were fucked. Went <laughs> after Voges and yes. Marsh had put on four hundred and fifty uh, in a partnership, and he teed off and was what ninety odd not out at a point where they were about seven wickets down, and and he was well on track for the Bannerman. And in the end, a few runs came in down the order, and he didn't get there. Yeah, it's when he was following on, that's right, because they got bowled out by Pato in the first innings, I think it was. So that's uh, the Windy Sri Lanka. We'll stay on that. You mentioned Tom Moody has become the director of cricket in mm. Sri Lanka. I, I I got an email from... Long Tom. Uh, Andrew Sampson overnight to bring something to my attention. Andrew Sampson, of course, being the master BBC statistician, among other places. And uh, he wanted me to know that um, we have a problem. We have a problem. Tom Moody yeah. being the director of cricket is not a problem. That's a good, that's a good thing. <laughs> Very good mm-hmm. man, and I'm glad to see that he's got another high-profile job in cricket. But the issue is that Suwanji Madanyaka, friend of the show, man I've written about in The Guardian, currently 48, mm-hmm. turns 49 in August. If you haven't heard the story before, in summary, he started back in 1991 as an 18-year-old boy uh, playing first-class cricket. Um, six weeks before the USSR dissolved, to put some context around it, Bob Hawke was still Prime Minister. <laughs> Originally, everyone thought he was 16 then, but then he sent me a copy of his passport and I sent it on to Crick Info and Cricket Archive and he's had his age upgraded from 46 to 48 officially. And that's relevant because he wants to become the first first-class player since 1995 to play beyond the age of 50. He's currently playing for his 14th club in first class or this day mm-hmm. cricket in Sri Lanka, the Kalutara Sports Club. They have 26 teams in first class One cricket. One of the great over there. sports clubs. Yeah, and look, it must be said that they, I had a look at their Wikipedia page before, they haven't spent a lot of time in first class ranks. And Suwanji in the past has said to me that he doesn't mind jumping from club to club, depending on who's in that, in that top division, getting first class status. And yeah, if he, and he's taken, you know, an extraordinary amount of wickets at an average of 22, and he's still going strong. But if Kalutara Sports Club lose, first-class status as Tom Moody tries to streamline the first-class system, Mm. he might be um, looking for a new club. So that might be a final word campaign. Hopefully, um, they can find a place for him somewhere in this rejigged system that he can keep playing to the age of 50. And he can... I think the last player finished in 1995 at age 52, another Sri Lankan. And Ray Mm -hmm. Illingworth was the last sort of high-profile cricketer to make it to the sixth decade still playing when he went back to Captain Yorkshire, I think, in 82, 83, when he was past the age of 50. So, yes, we need to make this happen for Suwanji, who's one of the yeah, one of yeah. the lovely people in the game. And, yeah, only 18 months away, I suppose it would be, from uh, reaching age 50 and still being a pro. As a player with top flight, uh, we need to keep Suwanji in the top flight. 
That's we do. that's the message <laughs> that has to go out to Long Tom Moody. Save Suwanji. <laughs> SOS. Sending out an SOS. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope that the Tom Moody uh, intervention goes well, but you've got to look after Suwanji Matanayaka. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Jeff, let's bounce back to Australia to talk about the WNCL final, which was played oh, yes. the weekend at Please. Junction Oval. You were watching that. Queensland uh, won it for the first time. They made 317 for eight in their batting innings. Georgia Red made an unbeaten 134 to complete an outstanding season. Uh, Michaela Hinckley, 53. Kim Garth in the wickets for Victoria. She was also in the runs in their reply, but they were all out for 205. Garth, the Irish, the former Irish international, she is now, sadly, mm. made 48. Annabelle Sutherland, 42. Grace Harris, 4 for 35 with their offies. And, Jeff, after all the sort of the drama of the lead-up, the final was Queensland-Victoria, and Queensland got the job done. Yeah, and it was nice to see uh, because it's just been such a New South Wales fest for so long, 20 titles out of the first 24. And the ones that they didn't win, it was usually uh, New South Wales, Victoria. Victoria won two of those, South Australia once, WA once. It has started to open up a bit in the last few years, but Queensland had never won a title. Uh, And we mentioned this last week that we we were barracking for them to get through but there was quite a lot of drama in the lead up because New South Wales could have made it they pretty much only needed to win one of two they were playing a double header uh, against Queensland Queensland beat them the first time and then the second game was a washout and so New South Wales got knocked out on that basis but because it had been a washout because Queensland couldn't get points from that second game or winning points they were vulnerable to being knocked off by South Australia. So Queensland was second, South Australia were third, and they only had to beat the ACT, who were the strugglers of the comp. And we did mention this game last week, but not the context in which it was played. So the ACT chasing 260-odd, which is usually far beyond them, uh, the secret life of Caddy Mack making 95 at the top of the order, she actually put Queensland into the final. If, if she hadn't won that run chase, South yeah, Australia yeah. would have snuck in. So the Queensland team were all watching that game and, and cheering on the ACT and, and they got there. And yeah, Georgia Redmayne, as you mentioned, 134 not out in the final, 99 not out when they beat New South Wales in what was effectively the semi-final. Um, left on 99 not out after Laura Harris just went absolutely berserk at the other end and smashed 40 off about 20 balls. Like <laughs> They won with plenty of time to spare. Like You could probably have left her another run. But nonetheless, 90 not out to beat Tassie and Hobart, 121 two games before that. So 531 runs, averaging 132 and a half in the season for Georgia Redmayne, who it's, it's so good to see. I remember noticing her years ago when she first went down to play for Hobart in the WBBL as a New South Wales resident at the time. Um, she was studying medicine in New South Wales and having to commute to be a, a Tasmania player and she's played for just about everybody since before ending up back home. Yeah, so she's a proper journey woman at age 27, you know, started in New South Wales, as you say, went to Tassie, went to the Hurricanes at the start of the WBBL, came back to the Scorchers, to the Scorchers. before yeah. going to the Heat, now playing with Queensland in the WNCL. I mean, Interesting story. As you say, she's now a doctor, so obviously very bright, lots of options in her life beyond cricket. But at 27, she might be in a position where it's it's a very good thing for her that the 50-over World Cup was pushed back a year because they could do a lot worse than bringing in, you know, obviously an inform, well-experienced, you know, someone Mm. who had to do it kind of the hard way, moving from state to state, obviously got a a good head on her shoulders. Uh, Thinking about national selection in that World Cup this time next year, I think that could be a very good shout. We'll see where that goes. And, Jeff, I also think that we should make for her 
outstanding contribution, player of the match in the WNCL final, Georgia Redmayne, our CBUS Super Performer of the Week. I can't argue with that. Uh, more accolades need to go the way of Georgia Redmayne for a fund that's as rewarding as Georgia Redmayne's WNCL season. You can check out CBUS today. <laughs> CBUSSuper.com.au slash the final word. If you like going to superannuation websites and seeing us, um, we're on that page. So <laughs> we know, are. if that helps make it less intimidating, go for it. And I've said it in recent weeks, but I've been keeping a close eye on what is going on in Canberra. So if you're one of the people like Jeff and I who didn't touch their super till they were like, how old were you, Jeff? I think I was like 31 before I thought about it. And it was a complete dog's breakfast and it took a lot of intervention to get everything in a straight line. Totally worth doing. I'm, I'm tipping you're about the same age. Uh, probably even more. I mean, I don't think I even have much in the way of superannuation because, you know, I've always been a freelancer. So who knows? I'll just be, mm, I'll just be crashing on your couch uh, once I hit 65. I'll probably be crashing on Winnie's couch. <laughs> She'll have a better paying job than me. Seevasufa.com.au forward slash the final word, of course. Past performance, no reliable indicator. A future, future, future performance. We'll try that again. And if you want a product disclosure statement, you can get one of them from the website, seevasufa.com.au. Help them sort out your super. So I've got to talk to you a bit about Elise Villani in the second innings. I have to do this. The, the run chase, they needed 317. The big name players had gone, the star players had gone. Elise Villani had a great season, made 600 plus runs. Yep. She was on track to shoot down the Zoe Goss record, season record from the mid 90s, 635, I reckon. Zoe Goss got something like that. They played more games then as well, made a few hundreds in the season, did Villani. But in this final, needing 317. Came out to open the batting, known as an attacking player, faced 31 dot balls, making 18 from 45, and then hit a rankful toss out to deep midwicket and got caught. Now, anyone can get out that way, I understand that, but I could not, I was infuriated watching that innings. Like, when you're chasing a big target, there are two ways you can go about it. You can go out and attack early like England do and take on the field and whatever. Or I understand the pressure of they were going in with a, a much weaker team than they'd had earlier in the season. You're the senior player. You want to be responsible. Yep. Sure, fine. But to do that, you've got to turn the strike over. You've got to find singles routinely. You've got to build some sort of platform, whether that's you know 150 off 30 overs or whatever it might be, to give yourself a chance to, to launch at the end. What you can't do is neither of those things, sit in the middle and play forward defensive shots back to the bowler again and again. I could not understand the thinking and what it meant was by the time she got out in the 18th over, they'd gone from a slim chance to win to no chance to win. She'd left those young players, those inexperienced players, no possibility of winning that game. Whereas if she'd had a couple of big swings and got out in the first over for eight from four balls, well, fine. At least they would have still then had 49 overs to win the game. But when you've sucked out seven overs yourself, not even trying to score, I, I, I didn't get it. Yep, yep. So she finishes with 6-11, 18 runs short of the record from 96-97 that you mentioned before where Zoe Goss made 629 runs. And, yeah, I suppose her route back to the Australian team would have been through this competition. But, yeah, I mm. sort of feel as though they've largely moved on uh, from that generation. We'll talk a bit more about um, the composition of the Australian women's team uh, in the second half of the show. Towards the end, I mentioned Kim Garth making 48. I suppose the very, very cold comfort is that after Victoria lost on Saturday, uh, Danny Long won on Sunday. So she won the... Uh, 
she played two <laughs> games in a row at the Juno, and uh, and I think she was player of the match and player of the tournament in the Victorian Premier uh, competition. Kim Garth, who of course uh, decided to base herself permanently uh, in Victoria and yeah. therefore not be eligible to play for Ireland. That's a debate we've had in the past, and hopefully mm. they'll find a way to resolve that in the future. So that's I, the I end of it for Kim Garth during that game. She really tried. She really yeah. put in. I mean, three for forty-five plus. She got clobbered in the last over, so she'd got through most of the game being very parsimonious. Just didn't have the support. You know, there was nobody really to back it up. Ella Haywood was good, the off-spinner for the Vicks, two for 53. Tess Flintoff got clobbered, one for 75. Courtney Neal, as far as bad games go, none for 65. Second ball duck and messed up. I think the worst missed run out that I've ever seen in that it was a ball just just played away to backward point, you know, just steered away straight to her at backward point, fumbled it. The non-striker tried to go through for a run. They both ended up at the same end, right. two batters. So she looks up and she's got two batters at the wicketkeeper's end and it's like, okay, you should throw to the bowler's end, but even if you don't, even if you throw to the keeper's end, the keeper can throw to the bowler's end. Yes. She threw it about five metres over the wicketkeeper's head <laughs> and it just rolled away so far that they were able to get back to the safety of the non-striker's end. It was it was, it was was a bad one. So, yeah, I felt for Courtney Neal had a shocker and a lot of the Victorian players did, but Kim Garth tried her heart out and... Uh, um, with the bat and with the ball and was pretty much a, a lone effort with both. Yeah, a career will continue to track. So that's the end of the women's domestic season in Australia. Jeff, before we go to a break, let's find some time to shoehorn in a little bit of a game that we like to call... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. It's a game that we play with people on our patron page. They support the show by sending us an amount of a currency, but it's not a normal amount. It's a very specific number and the number relates to cricket and we don't know how and we have to work out what that relationship is. Adam, uh, we have three new numbers today. We do. I want to say before we go any further that on story time, we're on the hunt for 614. Uh, I didn't mention this on the weekly show last week, but I should. So we've just passed 600 patrons, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, We couldn't love you more. Um, But James Anderson has 614 test wickets. And our next little target is to overtake Jimmy before he plays his next test match in June, which I think is quite achievable if people keep signing up as they Mm -hmm. have been. But if you've been thinking about signing up, if you can be part of that Next little push, that would be just delightful. And uh, the first patron that we're going to look at the number of today is a man by the name of David Croc. And David's number, Jeff, is 421. So $4.21, 4.21. How do you see it? Yeah, $4.21. So it could be 421, could be 42.1, could be 4.21, could be 0.421, I suppose. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure how it could be that, but it could be that. But I thought in the most basic sense, 421 is a number that always rings a bell for me because as far as uh, bowlers who've got more than 400 wickets, I tend to remember those numbers. And Sean Pollock has 421 test wickets. Uh, Having a better week at the moment than ex-former South African player Graham Smith, who we'll we'll come to that later in the show. We will. Uh, But Sean Pollock, I think when you look at those big high numbers of wicket-taking bowlers, he's he might be he might be the most anonymous of the bunch. He might be the most underrated. People don't necessarily bring him into the conversations when they start talking about the great bowlers of the nineties or the early two thousands. You know, they talk about Alan Donald more than they'd talk about Sean Pollock. But in terms of longevity, in terms of being a fast bowler who played 100-plus test matches, a fast bowler who captained his country for an extensive period of time, a guy who made 30 half-centuries and three tonnes in international cricket in addition to the 829 wickets he crossed, took across all formats. I think, I think he deserves 
a bit more um, respect than he sometimes gets, perhaps. He's not disrespected, but maybe he's not celebrated as much as some. Oh, yeah, he's a total all-time great. No question about that. And also someone who's listened to the final word. I don't mean he's a final word listener as such, but in the 2019 World Cup, when we were doing our daily shows, Harsha kindly engineered for me to jump in his car from, I think we were going from Southampton to somewhere that was a long way away. Anyway, it was a long journey, yeah. maybe four or five hours away. Nottingham? Was Nottingham. there a Southampton to Nottingham Yeah, League? that feels right. Southampton to Nottingham. And uh, it was Harsha, Sean and myself in the in the back of the car. And the only way we could record the podcast was doing it down the line. And so, yeah, he listened in and um, nodded thoughtfully as we recorded <laughs> and said, that was quite interesting. I'd, I'd love to know what the other guy was saying. I said, well, you can, you can... <laughs> No, he's a good guy, Sean Pollock. Great, great guy to work with. An excellent summariser on on radio. Um, worked with him a couple of times. So four two one could well be him. I've got a couple of, uh, shall we say, contemporary. Australian options to throw up as well. Pat Cummins figures when India were all out 36 were four for 21. Of course, we talk about the Hazelwood five for eight, but Pat Cummins got the party started. It's also Nathan Lyon's cap number. Um, we went into a bit of a deep dive on Storytime last week about how Nathan Lyon started playing test cricket, which was a bit of fun. That prompted a follow-up from uh, a user, a Twitter user by the name of Dunn Crumbs who wrote to us, Loved our chat about Lyon's meteoric rise. In that first T20 for South Australia, he he took the new ball and the info in the bar came up with Nathan Lyon. And where it would normally say right arm off spin, it was blank. (laughs) Pretty much from then, he's been a favourite of mine. So uh, that illustrates how off the radar and off the map uh, Nath was when he got that first chance for SA and, and never looked back. So he's... Yes, test player 421 on the men's list. And uh, there's a couple of options for David Crock. David, if we haven't got it right, drop us a line. You know what to do. Get in the DMs and we'll revisit it on Storytime on Saturday. That's what we do when we look at uh, numbers and history in a lot more length. Now, you were just talking about the number 614 as the number of wickets that James Anderson has. Oh, yes. By coincidence, our next Nerd Pledge number is $6.14 <laughs> from Peter T. Now, maybe it is Jimmy's figures, although I reckon that this number would have come in before the India tests had finished and thus before James Anderson had taken his 614th wicket. Mm -hmm. So I would tip that 614 usually for me only means one thing, which is Gary Gilmore, uh, the Australian swing bowler, who took six for 14 against England in the first World Cup in 1975. It leads the uh, the semi-final to get Australia into the final. We've talked about it before. It's always worth talking about again. But chasing a, a small total made... What did he make? 27 not out? Yeah, he made runs down, runs down the list and bowled fast. Six or 14, but like he never bowled quicker... <laughs> Use the track beautifully. I mean, it, it, they're iconic figures, aren't they? If not for that, they don't make the final. They don't get to play in um, that, that game against the West Indies a few days later, which, oh, I mean, what? That's probably in the top few games of white ball cricket ever played. And, and it gets forgotten. I, I watched the partnership because there's the Lily and Thompson partnership when they're, they're trying to chase the West Indies title yeah, and yeah. they put on 40-whatever-it-is. I watched it a few months ago and I got nervous. <laughs> like I was getting invested in the result. It's like, yeah, no, I, I know what's going to happen here. How about the I'm how about the premature pitch invasion? That's the one that always gets me watching the highlights of that back. Is it um, was it a run out that was given not out or something like that? And mm. the, the crowd invade Lords only to be taken off again and then they invade again when uh, 
Derek Murray executes the uh, the last run out, the wicketkeeper, um, in addition to yeah. Vibs' four run outs, of course, an extraordinary game of cricket, which finished, I think, at about quarter to eight or something like that, much as it was with the 2019 World Cup final, uh, a generation on. Okay, so Peter T, six ball. 28, could be, 28 not out, not 28, not out. I just checked. Glad you checked. Good to be accurate about these matters. Yeah. I've got another one, Daya, uh, that... I must admit, I didn't know anything about the game, but 6 for 14 when I was growing up, I used to always look at the back of the Inside Edge magazine. They had the, these tables they would put in with the best ever figures, highest ever scores, and I was, as you probably aren't surprised to hear, kind of obsessed with these. And I would see the 6 for 14 that Imran Khan took in a one-dayer and be like, wow, how did he do, do that? How did mm. someone take 6 for 14 in a, in a one-day international from 10 overs? Well, it turns out to be one of the most in one of the most memorable one days between India and Pakistan in 1985. It was the first game of a four nations tournament, which um, included England and Australia as well at Sharjah. It was the first of those quadrangulars they played in Sharjah in the desert. It was kind of you know new and interesting, and international cricket mm. hadn't been played in the UAE not often anyway until that point. So. And India had just beaten Pakistan in the World Championship of Cricket, which was another quadrangular. Maybe five teams might have been involved <laughs> in that, where Ravi Shastri was um, very influential in the final, I'm pretty sure. That was just having been played weeks before in Australia. So, you know, they've been playing each other quite a bit. And then India gets sent in by Imran, and they roll them for 125, and, and the great man bowls 10 off the top, 10 overs, two maidens, six for 14. Thanks for coming. But then, backs against the wall, India, they reduce Pakistan to five for 41 in their pursuit of 126. They get Imran for a duck. He's the third duck in succession for Pakistan. I think Java Dad was another of those three. There's a brief recovery courtesy of Sully Malik, but they end up all out for 87. Just 212 runs scored in the entire match. Kapil Dev uh, leads the way for India with three for 17. And in India, go on to win the whole thing. So they beat Australia in the final in another sort of low-scoring encounter. And this heralds the start of that really amazing era of Indian 50-over cricket that really starts at the 83 World Cup final, but through the late 80s into the 90s, cable television, uh, the opening up of the economy. We document all of this on, I think it's episode four of Calling the Shots last year when we talk about the rise of television, but specifically that that Indian story. And it's all wrapped up in, in these tournaments, these 50-over tournaments, and uh, and rolling uh, Pakistan for 87 after being all out for 125 was, was a big part of that. And it was the game where Imran, who, as we mentioned on Storytime, has been ill with COVID, had one of his finest days in international cricket, collecting six for 14. Very nice. Uh, our last number comes from Ash Parajuli. The number is $1.49. And I wanted to look at recent events for this because there were two pretty crazy scores of 149 the last time that India toured England. Um, the, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the more momentous, perhaps, of which is is chasing 464 in the fourth innings at the Oval. KL Rahul opening the batting, Rishabh Pant at seven. And on the scorecard in between them, the players in between one and seven uh, made scores of one, naught, naught, naught and 37. So <laughs> Rishabh and KL Rahul put on 204 together and they look like they're going to win this match for a while. They look like they're going to chase 464. And then it's it's Adil Rashid's probably greatest delivery as an England bowler, uh, his proper ridiculous, his ball of the century um, <laughs> that almost lands off the pitch, hits the top of off stump. 
just a ridiculous delivery and gets rid of Kale Rahul for 149. Rishabh Pant holes out to Adil Rashid shortly afterwards and, and they end up getting knocked over. And that's the bookend. That's the fifth test in the series. And the first in the series is at Edgebaston where Virat Kohli makes a magnificent 149 when everyone's falling around him. He's the last man out and he ends up getting India almost at parity with England's first innings total and then they need 190-ish in the fourth innings and there's a you know a great concerted seam bowling attack from Anderson, Broad, Stokes, Sam Curran and they managed to bowl India out just short but that such a close series it was 4-1 but probably could have been 4-1 the other way yeah. like every every match was was pretty close in the end and I thought it was worth looking at given that India's about to go back to England in a couple of months time and uh, they may they may be able to reverse that result this time. Who knows? Yeah, two pretty special test matches, actually. So the first one, that Coley won 4-9. Coley against Anderson in that series throughout was compelling, but especially in that first test. And when we returned for the Saturday morning and mm. India needed about 80-odd with about five wickets in hand, and Coley was the first man out that morning to Stuart Broad. It's, um, yeah, it was, it was a striking contest, and it set the tone for a great series. And as for the KL Rahul one four nine, that was the day when Rishabh Pant scored his first test century. And you're dead right yeah. at the tea break on day five. I'm going around and saying to all the colleagues, we're about to see India break the world record here. We're about to see these mm. two blokes uh, do something special. And, and yeah, it was Adil Rashid that, that changed the, the path. And eventually, um, James Anderson took the final wicket of that uh, encounter, which took him past Glenn McGrath's 561, 564, right. Four. So, yeah, it was it was a great way for it to end, having just the day before completed Alistair Cook's test career with a century, and he and Anderson, of course, are such close friends, and the image of them mm. leaving the field was on the front cover of Wisden in, in 2019. So, yeah, two memorable test matches, and can't wait to have India over here for five more this summer. All right. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, very easy. You go to patron.com slash the final word. You spell patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We don't know why. They don't know why. Uh, and once you're there, you make your account, you set your number. We will see it. We'll put it on the list. It will come up on the show. And you can help us keep making this show. Yes, it's, help us get easy. It's over easy. the it's top of 614 and beyond. Uh, we'll be back after the break with the Sheffield Shield, Jofra Archer's hand, the IPL, the T20s in New Zealand, and a new spin on the Bannerman. This is the final word. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to the Final Word Podcast. They call it the Zolio, the most beautiful device in the cosmos, <laughs> including the two black holes, Jeff. Look, I, I should have it for the video at the moment, but I don't. But look, it's about this big. Maybe it's a little bit bigger than that. It's a box. It turns your smartphone into a satellite phone. That's the basics. Uh, those are the basics. How do you do a... Uh, it's, what is it? Subject-object agreement. Um... Ooh, someone went to a fancy school. (laughs) No, 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 indeed, (laughs) that is not true. Someone had very grammatically aware parents. (laughs) Subject-object-verb agreement is is important if you want to be understood. That's, That's what I was taught. The Zolio will make you understood. It will make you able to communicate with someone else anywhere on the planet from anywhere on the planet via the medium of text messages or emails. So you have your phone, your normal phone, your normal smartphone, you have your little Zolio box, you turn it on, it connects to the Iridium satellite network named for its green flashes off its shiny bits as the satellites fly around the Earth at X thousand kilometres up in the air and 
it connects with an app on your phone and when you text someone it sends it via the little Zolio box to the satellite. So you could be floating on an ice floe, you could be at the top of a mountain, uh, you could be in one of those dead zones of reception somewhere on the verge of a large city where you should be able to have reception but you can't, like I don't, somewhere in Bacchus Marsh perhaps or sometimes in the middle of cities, sometimes you're in a terrace house in Carlton and you can't get reception. Or King's uh, Cross fucking station. Many times, <laughs> King's Cross <laughs> station, his nemesis. One day <laughs> the cover of a novel will have Adam <laughs> facing off with King's Cross station, <laughs> fingers twitching at the gun at his hip. So if, if you want to be able to send a message or an email from anywhere to anywhere, you get the little box, uh, you, you sign up for a, a, a plan to activate it. It's affordable. It's portable. It's other things that end in A-B-L-E. That would have been so good. Had you had a third a ball then, had you gone back yeah. to your days of doing, what did you call it? It was spoken word rap. Yeah. You might have, you're out of practice, I think. It's, yeah, it's portable. It's affordable. It's hubbable Bashar. <laughs> One yes. of the great early Bangladeshis. Yes, yes, it's all of those things. Uh, Zolio.com is where you go. I like it. We're talking about satellites. It reminds me we're coming into Eurovision season, Lena Satellite, mm-hmm. the great champion of 2010. Uh, if you're going to Eurovision, if you're going to Rotterdam, take a Zolio with you. Mm-hmm. Who knows what the reception situation will be like over there. And that's the other thing, because when you're overseas and your phone doesn't work, you can use this. You can just text people on that. We're going to need them. We're going to need them next year, because we haven't mentioned on the show today, Dare to Dream. We're going to be in Pakistan. We're going to be 200 miles from Lahore in uh, Derek Ishmael mm-hmm. Khan uh, when we play with and or against them. And I don't know what the phone reception is like in Derek Ishmael Khan, but I'm taking a Zolio mm-hmm. just in case. And I will encourage everybody in that tour group, which has been expanding by the day. We'll do more of that on Storytime uh, on the weekend. We've got more players. We've got more scorers. It's all happening. But, mm-hmm. um, yes, the, the Zolio will be a part of our inventory that we're checking in for that journey. Likewise, in Brazil, when we go there for our tour with the uh, Brazil women's team, which is going to be just fantastic. So yep. wouldn't want to travel around the world without one of these Zolios in your pocket, in your top pocket, ideally. Mm. I, I want to get more scorers involved. If, if we're... If it sounds like we're at four plus scorers, can we get like polyphonic spree? Could we get a whole choir of scorers, like thirty to forty scorers, who could all sit sit in a in a in a bank in the stand me now. and score Don't in the synchronized scoring. fashion? You keep me safe. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jeff, this is good stuff. Good. This is good stuff. The Zolio, Zolio.com. And uh, if you want to be part of Dare to Dream, if you want to come to Brazil or Pakistan, you know how to do that as well. Find us on Patreon, find us on Twitter, find us on our email, final word, cricket at gmail.com. Let's get back to the show. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford Brent, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins, it's Jeff Lemon, it's the final word and it's the pointy end of the Sheffield Shield season 2020 2021. uncomfortable. Started a long time <laughs> You want to watch out for the pointy end time of the Shield. Ago. I suppose it's the bit down the bottom, you know. The, <laughs> yes, well, we learnt about it, didn't we? the top and pointy down the bottom. Well, Lord yeah. Sheffield, of course, who, who funded it with the, was it the 
120 quid he gave Cricket New South Wales when they were touring in... 150, I reckon. 150, was it, in 1892 mm. or something like that? Anyway, um, that's on a story time deep in the uh, deep in the archives. Uh, the, uh, yes, the games the Sheffield. The games that are remaining. I tried, a, I tried a nanny reference a couple of weeks ago on a friend of mine and they had not a fucking clue what I was talking about. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> is that just, is that a is that just one of those things? Is that a bit like when you refer to an arranged marriage, not an arranged marriage, but a marriage of convenience as a Ned and Stacey marriage, and only people of the age of about thirty two yeah. to thirty eight know what you're talking about? Is it the same with the nanny? Probably only people of that age who were also in Australia, because in America they had a lot of TV shows, and so they didn't necessarily <laughs> notice. In Australia, we had three because we had three channels so <laughs> of commercial TV. So at the most, there were three sitcoms on at any given time. Um, the, the collective consciousness has a, a relatively limited number and the nanny got replayed on 10 for so long because they had no money left and they were like, we'll just play The Simpsons and The Nanny forever. It's fine. No one will notice. And really, no one did. We were like, you know what? This is fine. I'll watch these replays. Well, if they got Tina Turner out to sing at the NRL or ARL grand final year after year, mm. surely we can get Fran Drescher to come out and appear at the Sheffield Shield final at some point in the future. <laughs> It's only right. It's only right. And in the final that she may or may not sing at this year, Queensland are in a tough spot because they, it keeps fucking raining. For the second game in a row, they've been rained off. The first against Victoria, mm. they, they got to bowl and got into a good position before the game was ultimately washed out. Against South Australia, the, the first first class game to be played at Ian Healy Oval. They didn't get a ball at all over the four days. So mm. that means they need to win their last game against New South Wales. Probably will come to the table in a minute. There was one game that did go ahead. Uh, that was Western Australia beating Victoria at the Wacker by 247 runs. The Wackers made 391 mm. for nine, declared a good declaration there. Bancroft and Inglis made centuries, as did Midnight in Joel Paris. We haven't talked about Midnight in for a while. He made his maiden mm. first-class century uh, batting at number nine. They were 114 for five at one stage, and, and Paris and Inglis got them out of a bit of strife, and, uh, and uh, Big Will Sutherland, four for 81 for the visitors. Let's just stop there for a moment. Joel Paris making runs, taking wickets. Uh, I think we, I think we yep. just about start a campaign, can't we? Midnight in Joel Paris for the Australian <laughs> team again, please. He's got to go to India. He's got to go to India. There is, there's one takeaway from this. The other takeaway is that I don't know if you saw any vision of this, but um, Joel Paris has got the most filthy neck beard going on. Oh, really? While celebrating that hundred, he was doing the doing the bat wave with. You know how they take the helmet off. It's a bad idea to take the helmet off. Leave the helmet on. On. He also needed to leave some sort of front neck guard on. But there's not much coverage on the face, but it's just all on the neck. It's it's real kind of um, unpleasant political associations computer designer kind of stuff. He's got to um, um, he's got to commit yeah. to it. He should shave. It. Our, our dear friend Dono used to just keep the neck beard for a while there about ten years ago when we lived in Canberra. So if he wants to um, go down that well, mm. I think he won the. I think one of the years he won the Air Guitar Championship of the ACT, it was with a neckbeard, uh, Dono. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. Right, so that happened in the first innings. Victoria all out 207. And, and it was a good 100 too. It wasn't right. like a, a smash em 100. It was a, it was a sensible, sober, didn't hit too many boundaries, you know, collected, didn't go at a crazy strike rate. You know, it, it, was, a, it was a proper century from yep. 
from midnight. So, yeah, mm. in, impressive stuff and, and picked up five when they were uh, going for it in the second innings. Um, the Victorians, an absolutely wet lettuce game from Victoria. Yeah. In both innings, across both innings, nobody made more than 38 runs. But how about all the starts? <laughs> I mean, in the first innings, six scores between 20 and 38. And in the second innings, yeah. eight scores between 14 and 37. I mean, that's I'm, I'm sure the coach of the Victorian team, friend of ours, Chris Rogers, would be tearing his hair out about that. You know, it, it's one mm. thing to get a good one first up. It's another to get in and then get out. I mean, it's a, a, an enduring frustration of, of coaches, I, I suppose, especially in a game which they needed to win to be skittled for 207 and then 206 and West Australia having enough time mm. between to pile on some declaration runs, which gave Whiteman the chance to post a century and Bancroft a second half century for the match. I mean, WA played that well. Yeah, they did, and so you know, I just wonder: is there a little, is there a little rustle, is there a little tickle here that says that maybe Cameron, open inverted commas, bangers, close inverted commas, Bancroft <laughs> might be, might be starting to to get in the groove again. You know, he's made a few, made made a few hundreds I think in it's, I think recent he, matches. I think he's made four this season. Yep, and had you know a horrible period where it honestly looked like he couldn't remember how to bat, and he he looked just frustrated and frazzled but maybe he's starting to come good and maybe that you know but he was such a promising player before his um, career got wrecked by largely some other people being dickheads so I don't know there's there's that that makes me a little bit hopeful I'd, I'd like to I'd like to think he might get the chance again well, let's not forget that at age 21 this guy was making sort of bulk runs in the shield not many 20 mm. 21 year olds do that and then he went away and um, made runs in India back in 2015 for Australia A. He's had county cricket stints, played at Durham. I know that when he returned to the Australian team in England in, in 2019, he was dropped after two test matches. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we should be writing off Cameron Bancroft as having uh, the chance to play for Australia again, especially when the incumbent opener is Marcus Harris, who, sure, he's made lots of shield runs, but that they ultimately would probably like to have Warner partnered up with a right-hander. So I know Pekofsky yep. will be the first choice there, but... Yeah, I think there's 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 hope for Bancroft to, to play for Australia again. And yeah, in that in that game, he makes 113, then 68. Uh, Victoria was set a squillion. Uh, they were all out for 206, as I mentioned. Paris takes five for 33 to complete an excellent match, including four test players, Jeff. So uh, a clinical performance uh, by the Wackers to, to keep them right on the cusp of Shield final contention as we go into the final round, which starts on Saturday. So Queensland on 30 points, WA on 29, West Australia on 28, then Tassie and Victoria 2019 respectively, who I suppose mathematically they could theoretically get through, but really it's a race in three between Queensland, New South Wales and WA. So Victoria are playing SA at the Junction Oval. New South Mm -hmm. Wales are playing Queensland, top of the table clash at Wollongong. WA are playing Tassie at the Wacker. So WA are in a pretty good position given uh, that New South Wales are playing Queensland. Well, yeah, if if one of New South Wales or Queensland win that game, um, then the winner will be guaranteed a final. If they draw that game, they could still both go through if WA lose. So WA need to beat Tassie. As long as they can beat Tassie, they'll go ahead of New South Wales if it's a draw or they'll go ahead of uh, whichever, whoever is the loser of that game if there's a result. So that's yeah. kind of how it works out. There is there there is the possibility with bonus points, I did yeah, the calculations yeah. on this, that Victor- Victoria in fifth could still make it. How do they do it? Walk us through it. 
Okay, so so bonus points work in the Sheffield Shield. Um, as you get six points for the win. So the Vicks on, on 19. Six points for the win would take them to 25. Um, if you, you get uh, a tenth of a point for each wicket that you take in the first bowling innings before 100 overs. So if you bowl out the other team within 100 overs, you get an extra point. That'll take you to 26. And then you get a hundredth of a point for each run that you make in excess of 200 runs <laughs> in the first 100 overs. So they would need to make 478 in the first 100 <laughs> overs and then bowl out South Australia for under 100, okay. um, which just makes it all the more bewildering that, that Glenn Maxwell's not playing first class cricket because <laughs> if you wanted 478 in 100 overs, surely the solution would be to pop Maxie in at first drop <laughs> and let him go to town. Uh, unfortunately, Maxie's already in India, uh, which is where yep. a number of the England players have stayed on and a number of the Australian players have been flying out um, to the IPL or will be in the next couple of days. I should say off the mm-hmm. top that if you um, have been following our YouTube channel, which passed 1 million views the other day, thanks for coming there over the last three months. We're going to be doing IPL stuff. It's not entirely clear how we're going to attack this. We're open to ideas, but we'll be doing a number of things. We, we won't be doing everything. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we'll, we'll do stuff that relates to the IPL. Yeah. We'll track it as closely we, as we, we can We do not want to watch channel. a full match every day for seven weeks or, in yeah. my case, at 4am every night for seven weeks. Yeah, that, that's, that's not going to happen, right? We've decided we're not going to do Yeah, that, that's not going to happen. So we're not going to do daily wraps, but we'll do something and it'll be worthwhile when we get there. So Maxie's over there. The England-India series we've already dealt with on the YouTube channel. If you want a summary of that phenomenal uh, third and deciding uh, one day at jump on that platform. Meanwhile, on IPL Matters which starts on the 9th of April, so 10 days from now as, re- as we're recording it. Jofra Archer, it's not clear whether he's going to be playing because of a freak injury, which he took to India with him. So in January, he dropped a tank, a fish tank, and he cut his hand in the process and had a piece of glass lodged between two of his fingers and actually played through that injury in India. And now they're going to go back and operate on his hand to get the glass out of there. So evidently the, the injury Jesus wasn't precluding Christ. him from bowling. Um, but it's, as Ali Martin had in his story, it's quite unusual injury that adds to the list of you always see yeah, you know, no shit. weird ways for guys to get injured, like Ted Dexter getting run over by his own car while he was driving it and stuff like that. But yeah, so there's a... <laughs> you've got the Mark Boucher uh, biltong incident. You've got, you've got the Doug Bracewell dropping a beer in the shower incident, I think it was. <laughs> Yes, um, yeah, and then you've got the uh, the Joffre Archer fish tank on the foot. So that costs him eight hundred grand, Joffre. If he doesn't t- eight hundred thousand pounds, that is so the better part of I suppose one and a half million Australian dollars. If he doesn't um, show up in India after the yeah. operation on the mitt, so uh, he signed with the Rajasthan Royals and presumably you know, good to go after he's had his operation. But that's all a bit unclear at the moment. The other point here, Jeff, is that he's had another cortisone injection in his elbow. That's one to watch and probably more concerning, uh, according to Chris Silverwood, that mm. this elbow injury which we saw flare up in South Africa last year. We saw a reoccurrence of it last year. So it's the third time we've been talking about Joffre's elbow in the space of, I suppose, 14 or 15 months. Um, that's That can be quite debilitating for a bloke that bowls at 150 kilometres an hour. Highway to the cortisone. Uh, it's not a highway you want to <laughs> I was be wondering on. where you were going um, there. Yeah, it was. Didn't they just? They used to use that to roll out every um, Aussie rules player who shouldn't have been playing, 
you know, in the late 90s, it was, ah, oh, just jab them with cortisone. Uh, before, you don't need knees. Uh, you won't yeah. need them later. Not when you've got a premiership medal. Ooh, a cortisone jab in the hyperbaric chamber. When I did my shoulder for the umpteenth time, oh, yeah. I took a cortisone shot a few years ago, and it's a weird experience. I, I get why you do it, because your arm just goes, well, your shoulder goes numb uh, when you have it up there. So, But there's only a limited amount of times you can have it, or number of times you can have mm. it before it starts to be counterproductive so i'm sure they'll be yeah mindful of managing archer carefully but that's the ipl starting next week our final word trip around the world next takes us back to kind of where we started with the the microwave duckworth lewis farago earlier Mm. with australia's women playing t20 internationals against new zealand the australians won the first game pretty comfortably in the end chasing 131 by six wickets and with 12 balls to spare the day after they came out of quarantine they're on the park jeff you were covering that game for the guardian ash gardner really hitting the ground running on that series yeah that was um that that was a, a solid effort from ash she got dropped a couple of times down the ground but they weren't sort of gimme catches they were they were both Maddie Green running around a long way in the deep and sort of fingertipping it so it wasn't like she was giving up clear chances she was hitting to a zone of the ground that wasn't patrolled um 73 not out after you know the the, the well, three wickets went down early the fourth one when they were less than halfway to the target when Meg Lanning got out so that that was a you know quite a senior sort of job from Ash Gardner to get them home Jess Kerbold really nicely sister of yep it's probably difficult being the older sister of the much more prominent athlete in your family so Amelia Kerr has been in the New Zealand team for years Jess Kerr a more recent sort of phenomenon but she's Tom basically Curran, Tom Curran Crinal Pandia and Jess Kerr yeah. that, that can be the dinner party Right, the older siblings. <laughs> um, she's she's basically Megan Shute these days. She's bowling right arm and swinging it in a long, long way in the air. Um, so, yeah, she was good. Two for 17. One of the drop catches went down off her as well. Would have been the third after she'd picked up the first couple of wickets. Um, so, you know, New Zealand competed and fell away as they so often do. But then... An absolute belter of a game today. Enjoyed that thoroughly um, in the second match where they managed to chase down 131 from the last ball of the day. Sophie Devine was sick, so she woke up. I'm not sure if it was like a COVID-y thing where she wanted to sit out as a precaution. They just said she was unwell. So Amy Satterthwaite captained, and they had a pretty makeshift side. But my new favourite player for the time being is Frankie Mackay. Oh, yeah. Francis Mackay or Mackay, however she decides to do it. She's just a rough and tumble type. She came out to bat in the last over of the first game and I think the sequence was attempted a reverse sweep that she missed but distracted the keeper enough that they got four buys. Then she got given out leg before trying to sweep and overturned it and then like clobbered a couple into the deep and that was it. But she got to open the batting in this second game. She had a bung calf. She couldn't run after about the third over. So she just started swinging for the pickets um, and, and really got them away. Yeah, she got 46 from 39 and they needed that. That, that boost, I reckon. I reckon after having Australia 14 for three in the first game and Ash Gardner to belt 73 from like 40 balls, they, you know, they needed to start well, I reckon. And, you know, mm. Australia only made 129 for four. Mooney batting through the innings yeah. for an unbeaten 61 from 54 balls. Lanning and Haynes making 27 and 29 respectively, but not at the strike rate you should be going at 
towards the back end of an innings, both face 25 balls. And yeah. Mackay takes two for 20. So she's already kind of in the game and then opens the batting yep. and, and makes those runs and sets up the chase. And it was a thrilling one at that. So as soon as she gets out, Amelia Kerr takes over. She makes 36. And it was all, I suppose, looking back at it, built around how it played out in the final three overs. They needed 30 to win in the last three. Megan Shute goes bang, bang in the 17th over, getting rid of 17th. Amelia Kerr. Yeah, so you got 18, 19, yep. 20 to come. And, and, and Brooke and, Halliday, so she got two wickets in two balls. Right, um, right, yeah. And they needed 21 off the last two overs. And and then it was, you know, some ridiculous... Uh, so, so Hannah Rowe had scored one boundary in her T20 career to that point. She hit two in an over off Megan Shute. And I think because Shute was just... She was bowling the same... She was swinging it into the boot. And the first sort of three balls of the over, it was hard to get away. But by the time the sort of fourth, fifth, sixth deliveries came along... Hannah Rowe had an idea of where it was going and was able to line her up a bit. So maybe that was a tactical misstep, sort of bowling the same delivery. But it didn't seem like New Zealand should be able to get there. But they'd, they'd choked Australia out when they were bowling. They'd just set the fields really well. Every time Australia's batters hit the ball, it went straight to the outfielder or straight to the infielder. Like they could not get a boundary. They hit 11 fours in the day, I think. Right. And so it just let New Zealand stay close enough. And then Matty Green in the last over, a beautiful cover drive for four off the first ball of the over, and then an inside edge past leg stump for four off the last ball um, when they needed three off the last ball to win, she got four. Yeah, tremendously exciting uh, last few overs. I watched the highlights back before. It was all happening, wasn't it? And, and I think some some interesting bits to pull from this on the Australian side of the ledger. So well done, New Zealand, for, for staying in the series and, and for yeah, holding their nerve would be the best way to describe it after needing 30 from the final three. If they fall short there... After a rugged summer... Yeah, if they can't if they can't chase one thirty after doing so well with the ball to you know hold Australia back, they they probably lose three nil three nil. I reckon they they lose all the one you know yeah. the ask could easily fall out. But going one all, at least we have a series on our hands after a yeah fairly modest summer for New Zealand across their two series that they've played so far. Now the question I and having not watched the games in full, uh, I think you should perhaps address. But I note there's now a fair bit of conversation around Elise Perry returning to the team. Didn't bowl in the first game, the first time she hasn't bowled in an international for Australia since 2016. And according to her pre-series interviews, there's nothing wrong with her body. She's got a a new and improved run-up. There's no concerns about her getting to the crease or anything like that. She bowled one over in the defence of 129, didn't get a second one, went for eight runs. Jeff, for the last... 10 years, Elise Perry bowls over 20 in a situation like that. You know, in a scenario like that, mm. 10 runs to play with, you chuck the ball to, uh, you know, your most accomplished and confident and consistent bowler in Elise Perry. And here they go to Nicola Carey. I mean, Lisa Stalaker, who's a close friend of Elise Perry, I mean, she's been important to her development the whole way through at New South Wales coming through. And, sure. of course, they were World Cup winners together. Even she said that there may not be a place for Elise Perry as just a batter. She kind of needs to be bowling as well. So it's kind of interesting that she hasn't been prominent with the ball in either game and didn't get that chance to close it out today. Well, maybe not as just a batter if she's not in the top three. Yes, the, yes. The, the thing I would say is, so what she was able to do in the first game, she did her job perfectly because Ash Gardner was going bonkers and Perry made 23 not out at the other end. The perfect foil, if you want someone to do... Uh, the opposite of the Elise Villani innings that I talked about before and be able to rotate strike on the regular, Perry can do that. And she does have the ability to, to hit boundaries. I I think I think we've seen her T20 game improve um, so much over the previous couple of years before she got injured. She's obviously been out for a while. But if, if you wanted to 
back a player to be able to adapt and improve their game, there's nobody who is a better bet to back than Perry. So they want her to bat down at six. They want that to be her spot. You know, maybe you could have a more attacking player in there, but I don't think you could have a more reliable player in there. So I don't necessarily think it's an issue. And she was fit to bowl in this game. She wasn't called upon. I don't know why she wasn't called upon. Maybe that was a tactical choice for the 20th to say that Nick Carey bowls a flatter trajectory and she's harder to get under. And so when you want to make sure they don't hit a boundary and they need 10 off the last over, that was a decent bet. And she bowled a really good over. She bowled at the stumps and she was unlucky to have an inside edge that went for four off the last ball. So I don't, think you could say that Lanning made the wrong call even. Uh, maybe it was just that Perry wasn't required. Her bowling does, has been lined up more easily in the last couple of years before she got injured than it was before. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I just think, I suppose, it's, it's interesting that we're, ha- uh, you know, we're having this conversation and that's the beauty of the WBBL. The fact that, yeah. I mean, this started the 2018 World Cup in the Caribbean, which I covered, where she was mm. down at six. I think she batted seven in one of the games came back to Australia in 1819 and made her 777 runs in the season and had never been better, mm. talked openly about the fact that it, it stung her a little bit, batting down at six and seven, and that she wanted to take a game to the next level. But as it is in all great teams, mm-hmm. sometimes there's just not enough room at the end. I mean, who's she batting ahead of in that, in that, uh, in that mm. top four? Uh, you could argue that Beth Mooney, unbeaten 61 from 54, was a, a match-losing half-century. I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't watch the game closely enough to make that assumption. But you could, you could statistically build that case that if you bat for 54 yeah. balls, you should make more than 61 runs. But Mooney, Mooney was the player of the tournament uh, in the World Cup last year. She was the ICC T20 Player of the Year in 2017. She's not going anywhere. So where is a spot in that top four for Perry. So, yes, uh, it is interesting to watch yeah. whether she's going to be not good enough to play for Australia and reinvent herself, just physically whether there's a spot, mm. whether she's the best fit, perhaps, to bat number six if she's not bowling. I mean, that's going to be one to watch, I think. The spot for Perry is potentially when Rachel Haynes retires. Right. So she'll go through to the next 50-over World Cup, but will will she go on after that? Not too sure. You know, she may. She's competitive, but... She's the she's the 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 elder yep. player in the yep. team at the moment. And look, the other thing is, how much longer does Perry want to go on for? She's been in that team since she was sixteen, well, so you know she's she's younger in human years, but she's older in. You're dead right. I mean, I, I think she said uh, I asked her that question when she made that century at Taunton a couple of years ago in the Test match about her longevity, and she was pretty open that that could easily have been her last trip to England, right? And if you sort of do the maths, the next time that they're mm. scheduled to come to England is two years from now. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's outside the realms of possibility that she's in sort of the last couple of years of her playing career because her body, I mean, it, it must be so beaten up having played so much sport. It's not a case of seeing mm. her birth certificate years. Like you say, it's more about the miles mm. on the clock. But never write off a champion. But, but it's about the enthusiasm. It's, it's about, it's, you know, that will, will she actually still be interested in yeah. doing that? Is there a point at time where you have done all the things. Now, she missed out on the the World T20 final at the MCG and that stung, you know, no doubt at all. So she probably wants to win something else first, but if they, for instance, won a 50-over World Cup next year, would that be enough? You know, Interesting maybe it would. terrain that. We'll keep an eye on it through the course of the winter. Jeff, heavier stuff, a topic that we need to touch on, I think, is um, off the field in women's cricket in South Africa. Karen Smithy's legal case. Big story in the Times uh, on the weekend. Karen Smithy, who of course led England to World Cup triumph in 1993. 
She's lived in South Africa for the last 20 years working in cricket, a coach and administrator and so on. But she's suing Cricket South mm-hmm. Africa because she didn't get the the main women's coaching job on the basis of her sexuality and her gender. In summary, uh, there was a panel of four interviewing her, which included Graham Smith. And after mm-hmm. the interview, the Zoom conversation reportedly allegedly wasn't turned off. So uh, when she left the chat, there was still a file that was being recorded where some disparaging comments, including a reference to a darling, darling relationship with a player, that is to say that she would get involved with a player, would be reason uh, enough not to hire her in that role. Of course, they're all allegations at the moment. South Africa's Employment Equity Act is pretty sort of clear on these matters if she's successful in her legal case in establishing the facts. But Um, The court case is all ahead of us and Cricket South Africa have until the 1st of April to respond. They have an incredible capacity to make problems for themselves at Cricket South Africa. So, yeah, this this is just extremely frustrating. You know, obviously it's all couched in terms of allegations and so on, but if it's all been recorded, and this is something that, I mean, people have got into trouble with Zoom things with the text chats as well because you can send a, a private text chat to someone but it's included in the text log that's downloadable at the end of the the call so you know presumably they've she's clicked off the line and they've continued having this conversation on the same call so i don't know how much room there is to deny that the conversation was had more about what it means and you know that that phrasing of darling darling relationship i don't actually know what that's supposed to mean like it you know it could be referring to what you're referring to or it could be more like there'd be favoritism among gay players or something like I, that. i'm pretty yeah. sure i mean based on the reporting Whatever times it, is, it was the former uh you know and yeah you know it's hard because it's not as though we're experts on the south african legal system let's not let's not pretend but <laughs> well i don't know about <laughs> and another you, thing but. um but i mean you know the fact that cricket south africa had the chance to settle and didn't so they've elected to let this go to court. Feels mm. like something that's going to get ugly. So that'll mm-hmm. play out, I, I suppose, through, through the course of the year. And yes, the fact that Graham Smith was on the panel um, means that it'll be yeah, quite high profile and the legal papers have been delivered and leaked and in the usual way and out there in the public domain. Certainly, yeah, more high profile than it would have been with other administrators. But, you know, Graham Smith has had some, uh, some, some, some wins in, in his position and some very disappointing moments in his position as director of cricket that he hasn't even been in for that long. And this is uh, certainly the opposite of a win. Like, it, it's just so hugely frustrating that you could have such a, a backwards point of view in you know, particularly in women's sport where it's it's not supposed to be an issue anymore that you know, that there are that there are players of all kinds of sexualities. Um, so what? They play, they're good at it. You've got a, a married couple in the South African team as a couple of their most prominent players. It hasn't seemed to have caused them any problems with, with winning matches. So yeah, the the idea that you get discounted as a coach on that basis. And I think it was also couched in terms of transformation terminology that he was saying, you know, a lot of it was about, oh, she's English, yeah. you know, she's a so she shouldn't get the job. And how can we give the job to a white woman ahead of a, a black African man? And there have been a lot of efforts to promote black Africans in as players and as administrators within CSA, which, you know, overall we agree is a good thing, but... In this context, it seems to be 
using the transformation agenda to to reinforce other prejudices and you know uh, equality has to be intersectional as, as to use the language that people use to talk about it you can't um, help lift up marginalised groups by oppressing other marginalised Well said. Uh, on a far, far lighter note to finish, we'll just do a little bit of Bannerman. Uh, if you've been listening to the show in recent weeks, you'll know that we're on the hunt for all the scores that we can find. Professional cricket, but also recreational cricket of scores where a batter, batsman has been out for 67.35% of runs or more in a completed inning, so all 10 wickets falling. Um, but James Rolston had a a different spin on this. He uh, he said that we have warped him. <laughs> He's watching the AFL game between the Adelaide Crows and the Sydney Swans on the weekend, and he thinks that Tex Walker. He thought at the time that Tex Walker could be on track for a bannerman in terms of the the score he was kicking himself. Um, in the end, Walker kicked six goals three out of eleven twenty two, so not quite in in sixty seven point three five territory. Yeah. But I went away he, and had he a was six out of eight at the time. Yeah, so he, he yeah. was on seventy five percent at the time. So I had a quick look and thought of a couple of games that might ticked the box and thought Lance Franklin's 13 but no that was 13 out of 27 so not even 50% and what about Jason Dunstall 17 goals 5 in 1992 against Richmond at the day of footy I was at and the age actually reproduced the match report on Sunday which was a beautiful thing reading back through it 17 5 out of 25 12 comes to 66.04 so Jason Hadfield Dunstall falls one goal, I suppose, one and a half percent, not even, mm-hmm. short of a of an AFL bannerman. I'm sure there have been many footy bannermans, by the way, because lots of times teams would kick, you know, four goals and one player kick three of them or one goal or whatever. But if you have some sort of caveat or benchmark, it, it works for me. There are plenty of dog shit teams and, you know, early 1900s teams and so on where the score was <laughs> one goal, three plays, one goal, eight or something like that, you know, back when they used to have to go through a mud pit. So I think you'd have to set a minimum that, you know, it might be, it might have to be more than four goals kicked by the team, say, you know, out of maybe the Bannermans out of five and above, something like that. Um, I'm sure some mm-hmm. football statisticians can get onto it when they've stopped counting um, hard ball clearance gets and metres gained out of defensive 50. <laughs> yeah, I like that people have been doing Bannermans for their own personal interests. So when the West Australian election was happening the other week, people were checking whether the, the WA Labor had um, had successfully cleared the Bannerman. Yes, they absolutely did uh, clear the Bannerman. <laughs> Um, a wonderfully led campaign. Uh, uh, so we'll be back with more Bannerman on the weekend. We've got a couple of absolute pearlers from Brent Simmons in the email at the moment, which, uh, Jeff, I look forward mm-hmm. to telling you all about. So keep them coming. Uh, cricket at gmail.com, on Patreon, on Twitter, wherever it is. We want to hear your Bannermans. We'll close the show on that note, uh, Jeff, it's been good fun. Uh, a, a very busy week. I'm mm. waving to my camera now. If you want to watch where we've been sitting for it, I've been in my living room in London. Jeff, you've been in your sauna in Melbourne. In the sauna. Um, yep. and, uh, just, just limbering up, just, uh, <laughs> just doing the show in a towel we're, we're as, con- as his customer. We're continuing to put all of our episodes, including Storytime, uh, now on YouTube. So if that's your preferred medium, uh, you can uh, jump on mm. there. We've passed, uh, I think, nearly 16,000 subscriptions. The Harsher Bogley interview which we've had on the podcast feed a couple of times but um, the actual video of it we were ahead of our time thinking about videoing some mm. of the Epsom two years ago and that's coming quite handy I think 80 odd thousand people have watched that now on on YouTube which is great so uh, Google the final word cricket podcast YouTube and you can find us and subscribe there and we'll have all the IPL content coming out 
in the next couple of weeks. Uh, some thank yous, as always, to Zolio and to CBUS for being our commercial partners and to all of our patrons who are just, just wonderful uh, supporters of what we're trying to do here, enabling us to make the show twice a week. Great correspondence throughout the course of the weekend and, yeah, look forward to uh, dealing with more of their numbers on the Weekend Storytime show, which has been going a treat. I think you've said all of the things that I wanted to say or would have said or would have wanted to say. Um, so, yes, we have come to the end of of an episode the show is on the bad producer podcast network they have lots of other shows you might like them too check them out uh, it's edited by dave open inverted commas dc close inverted commas collins and it's spoken by me and him yeah, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna plug one bad producer productions podcast before we go we we put a full stop on the final frontier series this week the other show that i make which was about cricket if you're an australian cricket fan or an indian cricket fan that was a really rewarding project we made eight eps all up and if you like hearing about um, the history of cricket on our Storytime show, I'm tipping you're probably going to enjoy uh, learning about the story of India and Australia, uh, specifically between 1991 and the 2001 magnificent series. So it's all there on uh, the greatest season it was, Final Frontier. Okay, thank you, linesmen. Thank you, ball boys. That's it. The final word, Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks for listening. Back with you again on the weekend. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about.